Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Ellen Vora is a holistic psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root. She received her BA from Yale and her MD from Columbia, and she is board certified in psychiatry and integrative holistic medicine. And we have a number of amazing online classes on My Buddy Green with Ellen, which you should all check out and we will link to in our show notes. But today, we're here to talk about her incredible new must-read book titled The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. Ellen, so good to see you. Jason, it's really nice to see you. Always great to have you, and I love your new and first book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. And boy, do we need this book. (laughs) I'm going to start in chapter one, titled appropriately, The Age of Anxiety. I would say, you know, a a great chapter title given... 33.7% of Americans are affected by an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. And from 2008 to 2018, incidences of anxiety increased by 84%, 84% among 18 to 25 year olds. And that data does not include COVID-19. And as you say in the book, there was one report by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which found symptoms of anxiety and depression jumped from 270, 270 percent from 2019 to 2021. And it's 2022. We're still going on with this crap. It's it's horrifying. So I'm going to start there. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrifying. It's horf- It's grim. And yet I'm hopeful. But yeah, we already had a problem even before the pandemic. It really was already the most common complaint I was hearing in my practice. And then with the pandemic, it became almost, you know, nearly a universal state. And we call it all sorts of different things, burnout and anxiety. And, you know, people have concerns around, are they, you know, clinically anxious or is it more situational? And I think like, to me, I'm not that interested in gatekeeping the diagnoses, like meeting criteria for clinical anxiety isn't completely immaterial to me for anybody identifying with this term anxiety. To me, that's meaningful. And I I encourage people to trust their subjective experience if they're struggling to start to take steps to feel a little bit better. So as I say, the numbers are pretty horrifying. You said you're hopeful. Yeah. Can we turn this around? Yeah. So yes and no. So this is the whole paradigm shift that I want to offer to the public conversation around mental health is that we've all come of age with the indoctrination that mental health is a genetic chemical imbalance. This is your genes. It's your destiny. It's a fixed trait. You know, you're, you have a family history of depression or anxiety. You're going to have depression or anxiety, the end. And that's not a hopeful message. In certain ways, it came as a relief from what we had before, which was like a moral failing and all of the stigma associated with that. So we used to think mental health was like, you know, something to be ashamed of. And thank goodness that idea is canceled. And we replaced that with the disease model that says it's not your fault. It's your serotonin. And I think that's helped get us further, but I think we have further to go. And where we're at right now is that people feel 
like it's their destiny. And so they think, okay, I'll just take this pill forever. And that's the approach. And I'm here to say that, as we say in functional medicine, genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. And many of us may have a genetic predisposition for anxiety, but then the environmental piece is critical to whether or not that manifests. And of course, a pandemic is an environmental factor. We're under stress, but there's so much more to the environmental influences on our genes. And it contains everything from how we feed ourselves, how we sleep, our relationship to our phones, whether or not we're moving, whether or not we're shifting our nervous system into a parasympathetic tone from once in a while, all the way up to our connection to community or even a sense of meaning and purpose. So these are the things we have control over. And a lot of it is low-hanging fruit. It's things we can change really readily. So that's why I'm hopeful. There's a lot to unpack there. And I definitely want to hit on a lot of the lifestyle factors you mentioned, food, movement, loneliness, technology. But I love this bigger idea of embracing our feelings of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think so much of our culture tells us, you know, we're not good enough or something's wrong and we can, we need to fix it. And if we're type A, that's like the worst possible approach. <laughs> and what I love in the book, you say, how can I, instead of saying, how can I stop feeling so anxious? We should be asking, what is my anxiety telling me? Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, I really separate anxiety into two different forms rather than what I was taught, which is, oh, is it generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder with or without agoraphobia? To me, that's not the classification system that guides management meaningfully. For me, it's about this. Anxiety is either false anxiety. That's our avoidable anxiety. It usually has a physical basis. That's not helping anybody. We don't need that. It's unnecessary, needless suffering, and we can address it through getting a little more strategic about diet and lifestyle. But then we also have our true anxiety. And this is not something to medicate away. It's not something that we could gluten-free or decaf our way out of. It is really a, a truth from deep within that's basically our body communicating, saying, slow down, pay attention. There's something here that requires your attention. It has to do with your unique perspective, your unique gifts. And we want you to take action around this. This pertains to the contribution you're here to make. And so I think that it really shifts our perspective around anxiety. It's not this nuisance, this thing that we want to get rid of, but in many ways, it's our truth. It's a call to action and it's purposeful. And I think even just in to not pathologize anxiety can be really liberating to not so much focus on this is something wrong with me, but that this is something really part of my essence. It's something right with me and I think as we start to listen to it and take steps accordingly, the feeling transmutes from something really unpleasant to something that feels purposeful. Well, to build off of that, do you think shooting for this anxiety-free life is attainable? Is it productive or does it just cause more anxiety? It's an interesting question. I mean, anytime we try to white knuckle any situation that typically just causes more anxiety. So resisting reality is in general not a great strategy. But I think that there is something in surrendering to our anxiety that actually helps with the anxiety, paradoxically. But also, I think that it's really in reframing. And I'm interested always in listening to the body. When we are not feeling engaged with our work, I think a lot of us tend to beat ourselves up over that. We're like, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I not motivated? Why am I distracted or procrastinating? 
But I think that's also a case of what's right with you. Sometimes it is our soul rebelling against a job that's not in alignment with our purpose, that's not giving us humane working conditions. And the way our body rebels is by not being engaged or passionate about it. And I think that anxiety is in certain ways here to tell us like something's really not working about how our day-to-day lives are going. And rather than just trying to get rid of the anxiety feeling itself, can we slow down and listen to the message within it? And maybe it has to do with our lack of community, our lack of meaning and purpose, how we're setting ourselves up for sleep, how we're feeding ourselves, how we're working. And so it's there with an important message. And I think that we really miss that if we're just trying to get rid of it or eradicate it. Is there an acceptable level of anxiety in terms of our modern lives where, you know, whether it's 10% or in this bucket or you should have some and it is healthy and you shouldn't try to eradicate it. Like, is there an acceptable amount? We're all wired so differently. So I think there are some people out there who are so-called life naturals. I think that's Sarah Wilson's term. They're not going to be anxious all that often. So some peak stressful experience is going to happen. They're going to touch the feeling of anxiety. And other people are going to go through their lives constantly in a state of tension and worry and overthinking um, and ruminating thoughts. And I think that for those folks, I'm interested in going through the inventory of false anxieties. Like, is this caffeine sensitivity? Is this chronic sleep deprivation? Is this sleep apnea? Are there little low-hanging fruit physical interventions that we can do to chip away at that anxiety? So any unnecessary anxiety is not there anymore. And oftentimes that actually makes a really big dent in somebody's anxiety. But then that remaining amount, I think sometimes it's helpful to embrace it. If somebody realizes they're just wired more sensitively, we now have a little bit of a cliche, which is to say like anxiety is your superpower. But I fundamentally believe that. And I think that somebody who's prone to more anxiety, who's just a little bit more sensitive in general, I think they're sensitive in every sense of the word. I think that they are more attuned to other people and other people's needs. I think that they have a sort of sixth sense of feeling viscerally connected to the problems in the world, to other people's suffering. And as much as that's a harder path, I think it's a really high calling. And I tend to think that rather than tell those people, like, you're being too sensitive and you're too much of a snowflake, <laughs> like, we should really be saying, whoa, what are you learning? What do you have to tell us? We could all benefit from what you're picking up on. And so I think for people that, you know, if you do find that you are that person, to not pathologize it, but to really embrace it and recognize that this is part of your role here. There's interesting research that uh, the zoologist Diane Fossey did, where she looked at a population of chimpanzees. And she found that the more anxious ones, they weren't sleeping as well. They were kind of hanging out in the trees on the periphery of the tribe. And they were like this early watch party, like the early warning system for the rest of the chimpanzees. When she removed them from the tribe, within six months, the whole tribe was dead. So they were really there to keep the whole community safe. And if you're the anxious person, in many ways, like we shouldn't be telling you you're too sensitive. We should be thanking you because you're keeping the rest of us safe. That anxiety is a form of it's being tapped into things that the rest of us aren't necessarily seeing or sensing. I love that story. And, you know, as you pointed out, all anxiety is not created equal. And so, you know, you mentioned true, false anxiety. Can you unpack 
that a little bit more. I think, I think it's just so fascinating and distinguishing between the two, I think is really important for individuals to, to kind of put those in two buckets and they're two different beasts. They're two different problems and potentially two different solutions if there is a solution. Yeah. So this is really based on the work of Julia Ross, who wrote the book, The Mood Cure. And she identified that we have real moods and false moods. Real moods are something happened, you're in a mood as a result. A false mood is those times when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed or suddenly out of nowhere, you're irritable, you're sad, you're angry, you're depressed, you're anxious. And in a way, we're always happy to come up with a narrative to explain why we're feeling that way. You know, our brains are meaning makers. If you give it two dots and a line on a piece of paper, our brain is like, I know what that is. I see a face. But if you give the brain a stress response, the brain says, oh, I know why I'm anxious. It's because my boss sent me that email and my college friend isn't returning my text. And there's these things going on in my life that are making me anxious. But I suspect that's actually a retrofitted justification. It's a story we tell ourselves to justify the sensation when in fact that sensation is purely physical. If we could really look under the hood of the body, we would see that it was actually sleep deprivation, a little bit of extra strong coffee that day, some gut inflammation, and some doom scrolling. And that's what tripped our body into a stress response. And then that stress response feels synonymous with what we call anxiety or panic. And the nice thing about this is that there's a path out that's not seven years of therapy. It's basically address the ways that we're getting our physical body out of balance, and then you've really eradicated that anxiety. So that's why I call it false anxiety. I know that can feel a little invalidating. Like, what do you mean false? My anxiety is all too real. It's, the suffering is quite real. But the path out, it's, it's not addressing it at the level of the mind. It's addressing it at the level of the body. I love that. You mentioned stress response. Something else I loved in the book, it was the, the tend and befriend yeah. study out of UCLA. Can you talk about that one? Yeah. I mean, this is so classic that the medical research always just overlooks half of the human race, you know, for decades upon decades. And we've all been taught because of our textbooks in high school biology that the stress response is fight or flight. And it turns out when this woman, Shelley Taylor at UCLA, actually bothers to study women or female bodies in response to stress, it looks completely different. And it actually makes a lot of a kind of evolutionary perspective, it makes it seem like more of an adaptation that rather than fighting or fleeing, which could put offspring in ri- at risk, what we do instead is we have this sort of more oxytocin-based mobilization where we tend and befriend. And it's a more adaptive response to stress, but it is really, it has such implications. And I think it helps us understand that we also I think that there's a lot of interesting learnings that you get even from looking at how animals respond to stress. And you see how animals, after they have a life or death acute stressor, many of them have a practice for kind of resetting their nervous system afterward, kind of control alt delete, like a rabbit will goose will flap its wings really vigorously after an altercation. And that's the part I think we as humans are missing. And we have no shortage of stressors. It comes in, we take it in, it accumulates in our bodies. We just never reset it. And so part of what I cover in my book is practices for completing the stress cycle, bringing ourselves back to baseline. I personally do a really weird one, which is shaking. I learned it probably over a decade now and a decade ago, and it was really, it's free. I just pull up a track on Spotify. I listen to it for 90 seconds and kind of close my eyes and like make my body floppy and I just shake. 
And it's a really nice way to, I think it approximates what we used to do as animals to discharge excess adrenaline and reset the nervous system. And then it also seems to excavate stuck emotions, stuck energy. And it's a really nice practice. I think most of us need some way of doing that on a daily basis. So you shake that simple. You just kind of put on some music and just work it out. Very Taran Toomey like. Yes, that simple. Yeah, Taran Toomey's onto something. Yeah. In terms of lifestyle, there were some big ones you called out. And I'm going to start with one, which to me is we, we have some real issues and it's our relationship with technology. And there's a lot of good with technology, but there's a lot of bad. And I'm curious from your perspective, as an MD and also as a mom, what roles do you recommend we consider putting in place for ourselves, for our kids with regards to technology? Yeah, it's such a toughie. And I'm not sure I'm winning the medal as a mom doing this right. But I think that I really like the way I think it's Sean Parker of Facebook puts it. He says, use technology, just don't let it use you. I think that's the critical difference because there are benefits to it, right? Like we are having this call right now. I find Google Maps and Google Calendar to be life-changing. How did we do life before those apps? But, you know, it goes downhill from there. And I think a lot of things, we're living in the attention economy. We just have to own that and recognize that. It means our attention is the commodity that really smart companies are competing for. And they've done their homework. They know their neuroscience, their behavioral psychology. They know that if they prey on our fear response or instill fear, uncertainty, or doubt, or controversy, or just give us a hit of dopamine at unpredictable intervals the way a slot machine would, that we're going to rubberneck and stay glued and they get more clicks and more ad revenue, but our mental health is the collateral damage. So we need to start with an awareness of that. That's where we're living. And these are very ingeniously designed. There's no natural stopping point. No one has ever said to themselves, like, look, I got to the end of TikTok. Let me put my phone away and go to bed at a wholesome hour. And so we just have to be aware that it's designed in all these ways to suck us in. And so for me, my one absolute sacred rule is no phone in the bedroom that basically just doesn't come into this room. And that is a nice set it and forget it policy. It's not perfect for everyone, but I think there are workarounds for a lot of situations. Like if you rely on it as your alarm clock. There are great alternatives, like literal alarm clocks can get you much of the way there. And that way I'm not getting the blue light exposure right before bed from the phone screen. I'm not doom scrolling right before bed. I'm not getting sucked in and sort of staying up inappropriately late because I'm not getting tired because it's so stimulating, because it's so disruptive to the circadian rhythm, suppressing melatonin release, and because it doesn't have a natural stopping point. But in terms of my daughter, it sneaks up on you, you know, because especially if you're parenting in a pandemic with inconsistent childcare at school and you're still two working parents, screen time figures prominently in survival in those states. And so, but I think like the pandemic kind of came in and we were already a generation addicted to our devices and it just like incrementally shifted us 15%, 20% more addicted. So it's not great. And I really dream of getting to a situation where the alternative options, nature, play, you know, imagination, that it's just compelling enough that the phone stays kind of dusty, tucked away in a corner. We found a new appreciation for Sesame Street and mm-hmm. Disney Plus during the pandemic. Indeed. So technology is a big one. And then, you know, a huge one 
obviously is food. And we always love lists here at My Buddy Green, as you know. And so again, I, and I know it's so hard to generalize, but I'm going to try to get you to do it anyway. What's on your enjoy list and your avoid list in terms of food? Yeah. For my patients, for what I recommend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. Okay. I think, <laughs> I do think it's good to have a lot of leeway here. So we're so different in terms of what's accessible to us and what we're drawn to. I think the idea is that you, the compass that works for me, that works for my patients, is you generally try to eat real food and you generally try to avoid fake food. And I'll sometimes get called in on shaming fake food and processed foods. And I think I'll die on that hill. I'm open to that because I think that, you know, I'm never interested in shame. That's not helpful to anybody. But these foods are doing us a disservice. And I think we're in a really interesting moment. I'm taking this in a slightly different direction for a second. But we're in an interesting moment right now in the tension between body positivity and toxic diet culture. And I think that toxic diet culture and, and even the toxic wellness culture, sort of we're creating orthorexia, we're making people feel fragile and afraid of food. I think that's a big problem. And I'm responsible for that. And then I also think that we've swung too far in the other direction to sort of a kind of coddling, enabling attitude about food. And just as we were pushing back against a kind of patriarchy of diet culture, we've now just become the champions for a different patriarchy of the processed food industry. I think they've engineered foods to be addictive, think those foods are inflammatory and nutritionally bankrupt. So when I'm trying to help somebody with anxiety feel less anxious, we look at food first and foremost because our brain is a piece of flesh in the body. It's an organ and it only functions as well as it's physically in a state of balance. So if we want to feel less anxious and feel good, our brain health needs to be on point. We need to give it the raw materials it needs to function properly. It comes from our nutrition. So I do think a compass that's helpful is real food, avoiding fake food, and then nutrient density is the main focus. And then if people still feel like, I don't know what that means or what that looks like, you kind of want to design your plate to look like what your great, great, great grandmother ate. It's balanced. There's some kind of well-sourced protein, some kind of starchy tuber. There's veggies. There's ample healthy fats. We're really looking at foods so differently than what the 90s and the early 2000s taught us. It's not about low fat. I don't even think for many of us, especially women of reproductive age, it needs to be low carb. I think it just needs to be less processed less of the refined carbohydrates, less of the hidden added sugars, less of the inflammatory foods. But I think so important is to do all of this in a way that feels exciting and delicious and easy. And to do all this with a mindset, not of deprivation, but of like that we enjoy our food and that there's pleasure around it. And not that we feel fragile, but that we feel really like I'm feeding myself nourishing food because I love myself. Well, you brought up an important point, and I think it's symbolic of the world we live in right now, which is unfortunate. We live in a world of extremes. We take things too far. So on one hand, you've got wellness culture at its extreme with orthorexia, with which could be toxic, which can be shameful. And then on the other hand, you've got body positivity at, at its extreme where you should feel good in your body, but obesity is not okay and it's not healthy. And the reality is we need to be somewhere in the middle and it's nuanced, but it's kind of difficult to have that conversations like yeah. many conversations <laughs> yeah. right now. How, how do we, how do we as a culture begin to have 
conversations that are a little bit more nuanced in a world where people are fearful of retribution. This is a much bigger question. <laughs> retribution or being shamed or canceled. Like, I, I, and we don't have to spend much time on this, but I am, I am curious what your perspective is given your profession. You like, are, are we going to get there? I do think so. I think we're going to get there. I do think that we have to start having more conversations off of social media. And that is where a lot of good conversations are happening. But character limits and comment section hellscapes, like it's not, it doesn't lend itself to nuance. And we, I think longer form, like podcasts, like long form journalism, like books, is where you can see an original thinker laying out a long nuanced case for something. And, and I also think we need to go back to interacting in person because we can feel so polarized and so contentious on the internet. I think of even a, a friendship that I lost in the pandemic where we couldn't completely see eye to eye, but there wasn't a way to be in person with each other. And I think that if we were in person with each other, we could sit there, connect on a human level and basically say like, I totally see this from your perspective and here's where I'm coming from. And to just expand our capacity for empathy, compassion, understanding. We've gotten so far away from that. But I do think that there's an appetite for nuance right now. I think it's coming back. I think we've gotten to the point where every time someone puts out an idea, people say, yeah, but it's the other way. And I think that right now, you know, in a weird way, it was always a clout grab, you know, like, no, but you missed this point. I think the new clout grab, and I'm part of this, is to say, well, it's actually a both and. Right. Let's have the nuanced gray area, complex conversation about it. So I think that there's going to be sort of new, a new celebration of wading into the nuanced weeds. So it makes me a little bit hopeful, but I think it'll take us some time. Okay. I'll take that. Okay. But I want to bring it back to food because yeah. I still want to get a food list out list, of you. List. So, okay. you know, you mentioned fats and, you know, we obviously all got low fat wrong years ago. And I think there is consensus, as you mentioned, with healthy fats. You know, if we think about our brain foods, we think of healthy fat. So like what is on your, what, what is on your brain food grocery list? Like yeah. if we're going to get specific, like if I, is it anchovies, is it <laughs> walnuts? Like I want to, I want people to get excited about some brain foods right now. What's on your list? Sure. Un understanding, you know, not for everybody, but what's on your list? Sure. Well, let me tell you how I build my own plate. So as I mentioned, like well-sourced protein, starchy tubers, veggies with healthy fats throughout. So my well-sourced proteins in my household is everything from grass-fed ground beef, because that's easy to cook, to wild salmon, certainly sardines and anchovies, which are really nice, kind of cold water fatty fish that's small enough that it's not carrying a heavy dose of mercury. And then, and microplastics, which is kind of a new concern with seafood. And then like about once a week, we'll get a roast chicken. And I don't shy away from eating the skin, which is really the most delicious part. And I think one of the most nutrient dense parts. And so it's really any animal that was a healthy animal. And I think that get weirder, you know, we eat organ meats. I eat a lot of chicken liver pate. I try to stock it in my fridge at all times, take a spoonful about a day, um, like about a spoonful a day. And if I see game meats, if I see unusual meats on the menu somewhere or where we order frozen meat, I'll usually opt for that to get a different variety of nutrition. And then I also think that the sort of weirder the animal, the smaller the animal husbandry business. And so the more likely it's going to be a kind of love-filled passion project as opposed to large agribusiness and uh, more of a loveless project. Starchy tubers, we're eating sweet potatoes and white potatoes and squashes, but I'll also eat sprouted rice. I do well with that. And then veggies, it's every veggie. 
And healthy fats, we keep a nice ghee on our counter at all times. We keep coconut oil. We keep avocado oil. We keep a nice olive oil. And sometimes we'll cook with things like beef tallow or lard, or we'll cook the bacon first in the pan and then cook everything else in the bacon grease afterward. And to our 90s ears, that sounds like, oh God, that's a heart attack in a bottle. But what really ends up being true, if if that's a healthy animal, this is a healthy cooking fat with a high smoke point. And it's a real food that our body can recognize. I think we really got it wrong where we started to divide it along the lines of saturated versus unsaturated fat. I think the more meaningful dividing line is man-made versus naturally occurring fat. Agreed. Now that's a list. Thank you. I love your list. (laughs) I was going to get it out of you. I love it. So, you know, something you talk about in the book, anti-anxiety medication obviously skyrocketed during the pandemic. It has its place, saves lives. But how do you think about the role it plays? And again, we talk about nuance. There's a lot of nuance with anti-anxiety medication. So, so how do you think about that? Yeah, that's, it's the most important nuance conversation in the whole book. So I don't take a dogmatic approach to medication, but it, can be construed as that. I think it's it's easy to get that impression. So in my practice, I prescribe medication. Like I put people on, 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 on psychiatric medications from time to time. I don't see anything inherently wrong with that. And if somebody benefits from a psych med, to me, that's cause for celebration. Like if you're benefiting, it's working for you, you're not suffering from side effects, more power to you. You don't need to overthink that. You don't need to second guess that. There's no like moral infirmity to that, just go with it, go forth. So the reason I present so many alternatives to medications is not to call into question the merits of psych meds. It's to address the needs of the millions of people who are not satisfactorily helped by the current state of psychiatry. So right now, you know, maybe 50% of people are benefiting from meds. And even then, sometimes the effect fades. Sometimes you might be benefiting, but you have intolerable side effects. Sometimes you have to go off of it for one reason or another, some contraindication with another medication, what have you. And that process of getting off of psych meds can be incredibly difficult. And I think that's a major failing of our informed consent process and our sort of first do no harm as physicians. Because we need people to know this might help you, it might not. And in the event that you need to get off of it, it might be difficult. And right now, there's a lot of gaslighting that's happening around that. I think the physicians themselves don't even realize how difficult discontinuation can be. So what happens if someone is struggling to get off of a med is the doctor says, well, that's not withdrawal. That's just relapse. That's just an indication of how well the med was helping you and that you need to go back on. And I think that's completely inaccurate. Somebody struggling to get off of a med is in withdrawal. That's a power psycho- powerful psychoactive substance with a very real withdrawal. And so what we really need to do, to do in those situations is validate the person's experience and help support them through a discontinuation process, a slow, gradual taper off of a medication. So for all the people that aren't sufficiently helped, I'm here to say there's reason for hope. There's so much other things that we can do to support mental health far beyond medication. And to me, there's one other dimension to this which is that I'm just interested almost in a compulsive way in coming up with the elegant solution. And if somebody comes to me and they're depressed, they're anxious, and it turns out that, you know, maybe someone put them on a med at some point, maybe it was kind of helping, 
But it turns out that person is really inflamed. Maybe they have an unidentified dietary tolerance. Maybe their thyroid isn't functioning properly. Maybe they're suffering leaky gut, autoantibodies against their thyroid. This is a common clinical picture that I see. To me, the antidepressant is it's not actually addressing the fundamental root cause of the problem. So that just feels sloppy to me. It feels like an inefficient approach. I want to identify the fundamental problem, address that, and then somebody's just no longer depressed or anxious. So the medication becomes unnecessary. It's not to say anything's wrong with the med, just wasn't treating the real root cause of the problem because often depression and anxiety are not actually a Lexapro deficiency disorder. Amen. And I'm going to take this in a different direction, but building off of what you just said and identifying the root cause, citing the, the UCLA study and, and some, and, and, and it's just astounding that we ignore women in studies. What you also talk about in the book, the connection between the birth control pill and anxiety. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's a big one. That's Think about how one. many millions of women are on birth control. Our listeners may, may or may not know my wife, Colleen had a pulmonary embolism almost a decade ago and she was on the birth control pill and there was a lot of things she wasn't aware of pre-pulmonary embolism and the connection between the birth control pill, which is another, look, pill does a lot of good things. I'm not here to, to, to vilify the pill. But with all that said, as we think about root cause, medical establishment, ignoring, ignoring women, got to talk about the connection between the birth control and anxiety, uh. which you do in the book. Yeah, I did not know that about Colleen, and that's so upsetting. But so, yeah, I mean, the, the pill, this one makes me angry, to be honest. And again, the nuance is there. Like, we're not vilifying the pill. I'm all for women's liberation. I want us to manage our contraception. Like, that's all something that I really think is a positive. But we need strategies and awareness of just all the different trade-offs involved. And what I've seen so many times in my practice is that someone comes to me, they tell me I have depression, anxiety, ADHD, I'm on this cocktail of medications. And I kind of go into their history. And what we end up uncovering is that it all began typically like when they're 16 and they had acne, they had irregular periods, whatever was the reason, they went on the pill. And then, you know, they got on the pill. They're like, oh, hey, my skin cleared up. This is kind of nice. And then maybe six months later, they report to their doctor, I have a pretty low mood. I'm crying more often. I, I don't feel hopeful, whatever the case may be. So the doctor says, oh, okay, this is depression. And they start you on a med. And that takes you down the rosary path with each med, having a side effect that can masquerade like a psychiatric issue and then, you know, begets more meds and so on and so forth. And when we start to strip away the medications and identify the root causes, what we see is that it all tracked back to the birth control pill. And it isn't any wonder. We know that hormones impact how we feel. Ask any woman, does she feel different the days before her period when there's a fallout of hormones? Hormones impact our brain, they impact how we feel. And yet we think it's somehow going to be, you know, like that there's going to be no downside to putting a bunch of exogenous hormones into all of our bodies. It comes with trade-offs. We get the clear skin, but it also can impact our moods. And for so long, the medical establishment denied this. And nothing really puts more of a bee in my bonnet than when women report an experience and doctors say, well, there's no evidence for that. And absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And there's a lot of pharmaceutical incentives to not study these kinds of things. But so now we do finally have the evidence, which is to show that there is an increased rate of depression and anxiety with exogenous hormones in reproductive age. And so now we need to get real about what do we do instead? And there aren't 
easy strategies. It's a little different for everyone, depending on what your, you know, what life stage you're at and what your body's needs are. But at the very least, I want women to know that this might be a possibility. So if the chronology lines up for you, if you went on the pill, you got sad or anxious, it's at least worth taking a look and seeing if that might be playing a role before we get so wrapped up in these identities of mental health issues that might really just be a side effect of a medication. Yeah, th this one, the book is filled with so many great studies and data. And this one, I just, my, my jaw dropped because I think of the implications and how many millions of women may be suffering and have no idea and then become over-medicated. Yeah. So my question to you, as I said, book filled with so many great data studies. What, was there one you came across while writing the book where your jaw dropped and just said, wow, I really can't believe those are the... the that's the result. Those are the numbers. It's ah, interesting. I'll tell you, I didn't research studies for the book. I sort of, these are the studies I've kind of accumulated over 10 years of practice that I was like, let me write about these. But I think that the one that is most exciting to me, and I'm taking us in a slightly different direction, is actually the mystical experience hypothesis with psychedelics. And I know you and I have talked about psychedelics in the past, and it's a, that talk about nuance. There's a lot to be said there in navigating that space. But I've really liked the implication of what's called the mystical experience hypothesis, which is that if someone does a psychedelic medicine in a proper set and setting, this is like, you know, clinically indicated, no contraindications, a safe setting, they somewhat reliably have a peak spiritual experience. And that the extent to which they have a benefit from this intervention, like the enduring antidepressant or anti-anxiety effect, is going to be correlative with the degree to which it was a mystical experience. And I think that's so interesting. And to me, it pulls back the curtain on the fact that we can't ignore psycho-spiritual health when it comes to treating depression and anxiety. Because if you have a psychedelic experience and it doesn't inspire awe, it's not mystical, it's not profound or spiritual in some way, it's less effective than if it's a spiritual awe-inspiring experience. So there's something to that, that part of what happens with our mental health is that we lose our connection to the awe at the human experience. I'm not here to say that the human experience is, you know, easy. Like there's, there is challenge and suffering, absolutely part and parcel with just being in a human body alive in this world. But I think that to reconnect to our sense of wonder and awe and to feel some connection to something beyond our comprehension ends up being therapeutic. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think it's something we lose sight of. I lose sight of, you know, as I'm trying to, you know, grab a food list out of you and I'm wearing all my trackers and we talk <laughs> about markers and science and, and how frequent we should be working out and what should we be doing and all of the great tools we have at our disposal in our wellness toolkit. And yet, you know, if you think about it, does, and I think the answer is yes, you know, having meaning purpose, a sense of belonging, a belief in something greater than yourself, whether that's God or Allah or whatever it might be, is does spirituality truly trump all? Does that connection, as we think about like our own, you know, our pyramid of what really matters, is that 
Or are we, there are some days I think, are we really thinking about this all wrong? I think that what's most important is we can't force it, right? Like we can't force it, but I think we can give ourselves permission to explore. And some people grew up with religion sort of forced onto them and they're still in their swing in the other direction, a kind of like Kanmari cleanse of all that conditioning and all everything about that felt toxic or invalidating. And I'm, you know, fully in support of that. You find your truth. I sort of come at this from a different place, which is that I grew up in a very scientism kind of place. Like the cool way to be was to be an atheist, to be skeptical. Believing in God was like something you would hear about on the country music station, which you would like quickly turn the dial and not listen to. And so like I drank that Kool-Aid and was like, yeah, of course I don't believe in God. And that was a sort of anxious, cold world. And then for me, it was much more, it was in my 30s that I found this undeniable connection to a sense of spirituality and a feeling of that there's something beyond my comprehension and a feeling of guidance. And I've found it to be meaningful and comforting. And I see with my patients that some of them benefit from just being given permission to seek just being given permission to ask the questions. And I'm not here to proselytize or say like, you know, you got to believe in God, it's going to help your anxiety. But I think that a lot of us feel like it's not cool to hand ourselves over to that, but it's somehow, you've, you know, you, it's silly or like you're deluded. But I think it's okay to wonder. And I think that there's even in some sense, I've decided that I could, my sense of meaning and purpose could be completely wrong. And if I get to the end of my life and it turns out I was totally fooled the whole time, you know what? I benefited from it. It gave my life more meaning and I was comforted in really hard times. And so I don't regret it even if the joke's on me and I had it all wrong. Well, you know, and, and to clarify, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about God or, all, or, or a figure or something. It's this belief that there's something greater than oneself, you know, something I've thought about, and I've not been through the 12 steps, but the 12 steps is like one of the most effective programs. Like you talk to anyone, it's like, it's so effective. And the idea of surrender, like surrender and letting go is, is just so powerful. So I, I, I'm curious, like, what is the science? And, and I had, I had Dr. Lisa Miller on the podcast a while ago, and I, I love, and she made the argument that spirituality, the science supports spirituality, the benefits, I think I want to say, and our, our listeners should, should listen to the podcast, but it was like f kids who had a sense of spiritual, strong sense of spirituality were like five times less likely to experience depression. Mm -hmm. Like, wow. And so zeroing into this idea of surrender and letting go and coming back to anxiety from your, from a medical perspective, like what's happening in our brain, like explain it to it. Like why is surrender? Why is letting go rather than fighting it or trying to control it when it comes to our anxiety or whatever we're facing in our life? Why is letting go? Why is surrendering so effective? Yeah. So this really hones in on the amygdala or really the whole limbic system. And part of what it always needs to do is like the amygdala is like this watchtower that's always on the lookout for threat. And, but it behaves almost like certain biostatistical models where there's such a thing as positive predictive value that basically, if you have reason to think there's threat, it's going to be more likely to perceive threat. And if it has reason to think no big deal, it's more likely to say, oh, that's just a squiggle on the ground, not a snake. And so I think what happens with anxiety so often is that for one reason or another, the foot gets stuck on the accelerator pedal in the limbic system. 
It's stuck in a state of hypervigilance and hyperarousal, and everything is perceived as a genuine threat, whether or not it is. Trauma plays a really big role in this that can kind of get the limbic system stuck. And understandably, it feels like an adaptation initially, which is that if the world is not safe, then of course the limbic system learns to perceive this world as very threatening. And that becomes a maladaptation if the circumstances change and you're no longer unsafe, but now the body's just stuck in that state and everything feels like a threat. Everything feels like cause for concern. So what happens is that when, if you think about trust and surrender, they're on the opposite end of the spectrum with anxiety. Anxiety leaves us in a state of feeling like we need to be hypervigilant. We need to anticipate all potential negative consequences. We need to white knuckle how everything goes. And within that is this feeling of like very heavy responsibility, like that it's all on us to keep ourselves safe, to keep our loved ones safe. And that's really at the heart of anxiety is the ultimate worst case scenario of dying or losing the people that we love. And I think that, you know, that's understandable. But I also think that there's something worth exploring. What happens if you play around with that edge of what it means to trust the unfolding of the events of your life, what it means to surrender to this? And that's so fundamentally difficult for anybody whose amygdala is like, nope, everything's unsafe. I got to control this machine. But I think that playing around with that and seeing if there's meaning in the unfolding, which is not the same as saying like everything happens for a reason but more like a resilient capacity of making meaning of the challenges that come our way. I think it ends up helping to loosen that feeling of it's all up to us. And I also think that there's really good therapies to address a limbic system stuck in, you know, the key in the ignition. I think that modalities like EMDR, somatic experiencing therapy, even DNRS. And if you need me to define those, so EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing, and then DNRS, dynamic neural retraining system, I believe. And basically, these are ways of not just verbally hashing or rehashing a trauma, which can actually be re-traumatizing, but they're a very non-verbal approach of getting in and accessing the limbic system more on a non-verbal level to help retrain it so it's not just stuck in this state of hypervigilance. I love it. And, you know, as I think about anxiety, we can't always control when it comes. And something we believe in here at Mind Buddy Green is you can do so much in your wellness toolkit. You know, you can eat right, you can sleep, you can do all the things to kind of strengthen your muscles, if you will. So when maybe a virus comes, uh, maybe something comes that you're equipped. And so the context of anxiety in closing, what, what are some of the things we can do to strengthen our anxiety muscles? So invariably when it comes, cause it's going to come like it's going to come, we're, we're better equipped to potentially manage it. Oh, I love that. So. I do think that there's a lot of power around that balance between our sympathetic fight or flight state and our parasympathetic rest, digest, relax tone of our nervous system. And we have more ability than we realize to tip that balance. Of course, if we were like on the proverbial savanna of evolution, we might be 90% parasympathetic, 10% sympathetic. Modern life, it looks flipped. Like we are 90% in a chronic low-grade stress response, 10%. We get to the end of yoga class, we're in shavasana, and we might touch a little bit of parasympathetic tone. And there's ways, there's strategies to tip our nervous system back. Something as simple as a breathing exercise, inhaling to the count of four, holding for seven, exhaling for eight. It's a way of tricking our gullible brains 
into thinking we're actually relaxed. And then this neurohormonal cascade ensues because the brain just thinks we're breathing like a relaxed person. We must actually be relaxed. So anything you can do, whether it's 30 seconds a day, something free and easy that just tips your nervous system into parasympathetic tone, I think of that as like taking an anxiety multivitamin because so much of anxiety is that threshold of when are we going to get tipped into a state of sympathetic tone and stress response. And the more we can put ourselves in, in parasympathetic tone, it's like we're lowering the threshold. We're making it harder. And then, or I guess it's raising the threshold and making it harder. And then I think that if we can just prioritize community and sleep, that goes a long way. Sleep, you know, I love to focus on nutrition. I love to focus on exercise. I think it's all meaningful. But sleep is probably our most potent anti-anxiety medicine. And we just need to prioritize it and get strategic because modern life stands in the way of a healthy circadian rhythm in 50 different ways. But blue blockers after sunset, earlier bedtime, no phone in the bedroom will make a big impact. And then community. We are social creatures. Even if we're introverted, we just need to feel held in community and seen and understood and loved. And that's how, on a very deep, hardwired way, that's how we feel safe. Amen. Ellen, thank you so much. I love the book, Anatomy of Anxiety. Thank you. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you.